Hey gorgeous, if you want success on your fertility journey, you've got to have the mindset for it. It's time to kick fear, negativity, doubt, shame, jealousy, and the whole clown car of low vibe fertility journey BS to the curb. I'm your host, Roseanne Austin, fertility mindset master, former prosecutor and recovering type A control freak perfectionist. I use the power of mindset to get pregnant naturally and have my baby boy at 43, despite years of fertility treatment failure. I help women across the globe beat the odds on their fertility journey just like I did. Get ready for a quick hit of confidence, joy, feminine badassery, and loads of hell yes for your fertility journey. It's time to get fearless, baby, fearlessly fertile. Let's do this. Welcome to the Fearlessly Fertile Podcast, episode 257, Taking the Fear Out of Birth and Baby Making with Dr. Stuart Fishbein, MD. I am so excited to be inviting you to today's episode because we are going to be having a very disruptive, awesome, fun, and challenging the narrative conversation with Dr. Stuart Fishbein, obstetrician, maverick, proponent of home birth, taking the fear out of birthing, labor, women's health. I mean, this is going to be a conversation that is unquestionably going to be shaken up some of the standard narrative. And, and that's why I want to invite you as we start this episode to open your mind and open your heart. Unquestionably, we are going to be talking about things that might make you go, <gasps> but here's the thing. You get to think for yourself. It's something that I encourage women to do all the time. If you wanted to get average, readily available, you know, basic narrative information, you can just go to mainstream media for that. You can just listen to what the crowd says. But if you find yourself really questioning things on your fertility journey and wanting to open your mind and open your heart to other possibilities and truly give yourself a chance to cover your bases, you're going to listen to this conversation with an open heart. And I can guarantee you're not going to agree with everything. And you know what? That's your freaking right. You are a sentient, intelligent, amazing woman. And two things can be true at the same time. You can have your belief system. Other people can have theirs. And that doesn't mean someone is more right than someone else. So as we get this conversation started, I really encourage you to where you might get triggered in this conversation, just check in with yourself. Just check in with yourself. And before you flat out reject it, think about the context and think about what where I'm coming from as somebody who loves you and make sure that you have information that I didn't have, that I wish more women had, and that everything about this is empowerment. And empowerment comes from your ability to assess all of the facts. And the ones that work for you, run with them. The ones that don't, disregard them. Okay. Because in order for you to be truly the best advocate for yourself, your fertility, and your family, you got to have all the information. You can't give informed consent without information, okay? And as we know, I mean, this isn't, this isn't rocket science. A ton of the information that we have received over the past few years is proving to be, well, I don't know, different than what we were originally told. And my commitment over the next 10 years is that there are 100,000 fearlessly fertile babies that come into the world, completely free of propaganda, nonsense, and fear. And the sooner that we are willing to engage in a conversation that doesn't make other people wrong for having different opinions, the freer we all become. 
So I want you to be fearless and I want you to be fertile. So enjoy this really powerful, in-depth conversation with someone that I really love and respect, Dr. Stuart Fishbein. Enjoy. Well, I'm super stoked to have you on, Dr. Fishbein. So I would love it if you would introduce yourself to the Fearlessly Fertile audience and share a little bit about your specialty and how you got involved in medicine. Roseanne, thanks for having me on. I love the title of your group, Fearlessly Fertile, because fear is just such an adverse motivating factor for all of us. So obviously it does some good in how we live our lives, but to live completely in fear is just not a, a way for human beings to survive and live a happy life. I am an obstetrician gynecologist. And since I don't know your audience very well, I'll sort of start back at the beginning. I grew up in Minnesota. I went to the University of Minnesota undergrad. I had never really wanted to be a physician, but I was in my third year of undergrad in the College of Biological Sciences at Minnesota. And a lot of my friends were going pre-med. And so I said, well, if they can do it, I could do it. And that's So I wasn't one of those people that woke up with an calling because I'd seen something when I was six years old or something. I just was meandering through college like a lot of us do because that's what everybody did after high school. And so I did my pre-med stuff and I got into medical school at the University of Minnesota. And then what happens in medical school is first two years are pretty much all classroom and laboratory and anatomy and that sort of thing. And the last two years are all rotations where you spend three to six weeks on a certain service. Could be internal medicine, could be dermatology, neurology, OBGYN, family practice, whatever. And so you have to, at the end of your third year, when you really don't know anything, because you're, you know, but you are naive, but you are also enthusiastic. You have to make a choice that's going to affect you for the rest of your life. It's a very tough place to be. And so you start doing rotations in your third year. And what I did was I was doing all the general rotations like internal medicine, neurology, pediatrics, and I came off one called hematology oncology, which was a cancer dealing, and it was a pediatric hematology oncology, and it was actually quite sort of depressing for me. And my next rotation was OBGYN. And instead of being up at three in the morning, pushing chemotherapy or dealing with a kid with a seizure or something, I was catching a baby. And I just thought that this was the greatest thing. And of course, you're, as I said, you're naive. You don't understand the liability, the hours, the, the costs of doing something. You do something because you really love it. And I really wanted to do longitudinal care. And, and longitudinal care is care where you take care of somebody for their life. So there's internal medicine, there's family practice, and OBGYN are pretty much the only specialties that do longitudinal care. Everything else is like an ER physician or a pathologist or even a dermatologist. You see somebody for something and then you don't see them again, general surgery, that sort of thing. So this specialty had an appeal for me. And I, again, I didn't think about all the downsides of it. And so you have to then apply to residency programs at a time when you really don't know anything. And so it's more about where do I want to live in the country than, you know, what program do I want to, where do I want to end up, anything like that. And, and I ended up matching in Southern California at Cedar sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles, which is a really good hospital as hospitals go. And we'll hear more about that as we go through the hour today. And I went through four years of medicalized birth training. And I, and I was lucky because part of our training, we spent four months at LA County USC hospital in downtown Los Angeles. And it was the busiest hospital country in those days. They were doing about 22,000 births a year, which is about 65 babies a day. And so we got really good training. We learned about breaches and twins, and they were just considered variations of normal. And we saw a lot of pathology there. 
And I came out of residency very medicalized, thinking that I was very smart. I was the administrative chief resident in my fourth year of residency. And so, you know, I got house officer awards and all those sorts of things. And I was going along that path. And I came out and I was that very medicalized doctor that sometimes I tend to feel sorry for and mock sometimes because they've not been enlightened. And I was the one wearing the full hazmat suit, catching your baby while you were in lithotomy position with, after prepping your vagina with betadine and covering you with sterile drapes. And the baby would come out and I would hold the baby in one hand and cut the cord immediately and then show you this beautiful thing that you just created, then walk it across the room and set it down in the warmer. And I thought that this was normal because this was all we ever saw and this is all we ever did. And of course, you only know what you know and you don't understand. You have no, no vision beyond your line of sight. But I was fortunate because when I came out, it was a different world then. I, I was building my own practice. I didn't get a job working for a large corporation like a Kaiser Foundation in Southern California or some major HMO. And so I had to hustle to build a practice. And so I covered emergency rooms and I covered free clinics. And I was approached by some midwives to take their home birth transfers and I, transports. And I said, sure. You know, I've said this a thousand times. I didn't say sure because I thought midwifery and home birth was a good idea. I'm quite certain, if I remember vaguely, that I probably thought it was really stupid. But it was a way to generate revenue for myself because I was a mercenary. I was trying to make money. Probably one of the luckiest things that ever happened to me was doing that because I began to be re-educated. I, began, I got to spend a lot of time with the midwives when they brought their patients to the hospital and we were just sitting around waiting. And they began to tell me a different way of doing things. And I saw that their patients were quite well-educated. And we began to call them clients. We don't call them patients anymore because they're not sick. They have a normal biological function that's going on with their body. And, and sometimes it goes awry and that's where medical intervention is necessary, but most of the time it's not. And I began to learn that about 80% of what I knew uh, didn't apply to, to you know, 85% of pregnant women because there's nothing wrong with them. I was an expert in problems and most pregnant women didn't have problems. So if, you, you know, if you're a hammer, everything you see is a nail. So if all you know is medical problems, then you're looking for medical problems in every single pregnant woman. And I began to realize that that's not the way it was. And so I started a collaborative practice with two midwives in the hospital setting, because I was still certainly not thinking about working outside the hospital. And we had really good results. We were together for 15 years, and we had a 7% C-section rate, and the midwives took care of all the normal stuff, like the pap smears, the annual exams, the well-woman exams, the, uh, the routine OB visits, the postpartum care. And I would come in when there was a problem. Somebody had abnormal pap smear, needed a colposcopy or biopsy. Someone had an ectopic pregnancy, they needed surgery. Somebody had a breech baby or needed a C-section or, or a vacuum or forceps. These are the things that I would do. And so I found that to be a really good form of medicine. However, I don't even want to call it medicine because it really isn't medicine, a good form of care, I should say. However, we were never accepted in the community because we were always doing things that made the rest of the community uncomfortable because they had 30% C-section rates and we had a 7% C-section rate and we had assisting breach delivery and they were sectioning all breaches and I was doing laparoscopic surgery and they were doing open laparotomy surgery. And so we were always picked on by the, the good old boys, which many community hospitals still have. It's a network of physicians who have run the hospital for a very long time or they've been managing the department for a very long time and they don't like outcome. They don't like outsiders coming in and telling them that there's new things to do and how they're doing it looks bad. So they began to pick on us. From the very first day we started there, they, they did things that were unethical. And over time, it became a point where they finally decided that they weren't going to renew our privileges. They'd 
ban the midwives, they'd ban VBAC, they'd ban breach delivery, not because of bad outcomes, but because it made the anesthesia department, the pediatric department nervous. And so I had a choice of fighting them legally or leaving the hospital system and going to do home birth. And I was still very nervous. Even after 25 years now of backing midwives, I had never been to a home birth. And I decided to do that because I was actually convinced by my patients who were due after the date that they, my privileges were no longer going to be renewed. And they, can, they have the right to do that. It's their hospital. They can choose who they have. And again, it, they can't discriminate and you can sue them, but it's a long drawn out process and nobody wins in a process like that. So I had smart advising people tell me to leave the hospital and go do home birthing. And, and then for the last 12, 13 years, that's what I've done. And it's been a remarkable shift in, in my mentality and my energy and my excitement for, for what I do. I've gotten older, so that's slowed me down a little bit. But I published the felt several papers on twin birthing, breech birthing, case reports to let people know that this is a reasonable choice for women and their families to look at all the alternatives. And you, and you can't make an informed decision, and really, it's really about that, without proper information. And you should never be funneled down a path using fear or coercion. And certainly, pretty much every day in every doctor's office and every hospital, the basic tenets of medical ethics are violated every day. I'm not talking about personal bias, Roseanne. I'm talking about you know, ethical violations. Everybody has bias. The key is to admit that you have a bias. Most of my colleagues in the medical world don't admit they have a bias. They think their way is the only way of doing something, and anybody doing it differently is crazy. And that's just a form of coping with cognitive dissonance. So we'll get into that, I'm sure. I, 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 yeah. That's a long-winded introduction, but it really is important for people to understand that I've lived in both worlds. So I have a unique perspective of somebody who's not just a, a hospital-based doctor criticizing home birth or a home birth midwife that's saying, every time I go to the hospital, they treat my patients like crap. You know, I've lived in both worlds, and so I can see the problems, yeah. uh, hopefully more clearly than a lot of other people can. Well, and that's why I wanted you on, Dr. Fishbein, because I saw some of your videos on Instagram, and I was just like immediately sucked in because when I was struggling with fertility and when I ended up getting pregnant naturally at almost 44, the minute I went in to see the OBGYN that would eventually deliver my son, it was fear. It was like, whoa, how old are you? Like, get in here now, take 10 vials of blood, you know, ultrasound me like from every direction. And and instead of it being a moment that was like, oh my gosh, this is this amazing miracle. Like after seven years of fertility treatment that was failing and treatment at a top 10 teaching hospital, it was not a celebration. It went immediately into this woman is high risk. You need to be in here on XYZ days. And I didn't have any fear up to that point, Dr. Fishbein. It's only when I went to the doctor to confirm my pregnancy and all that stuff that I was at all afraid because I figured here, here was my thought process. After seven years of treatment, this boy decided to come naturally. He's fine. Like that's literally what was going on in my head. But the minute I walked through to see the high risk specialist, it was like, game on. We need to be afraid. Do this, like, just pretty much hand my pregnancy over. Yeah, that's the model by which they're trained in. 
And the reason that so many American women, let's just stick with America today, there's so many American women that fear birth is not because they're innately designed to fear birth. It's because the society as a whole, the culture, the television shows, the movies, the doctors that you see, they all fear birth and then they project that fear out into the world. And so, you know, whether it's your mother, your mother in law, or somebody else, they always want to tell about their story because they trusted their doctor and their doctor said, oh my God, going past 40 weeks is really dangerous. And they use terms like really dangerous or high risk. And if you ever sit down and ask them, so what, is, what does high risk mean? They don't know. They'll say it's just really risky. And they'll say, well, high, how risky? And they'll say, very risky. And they'll say, well, what's the number? And they don't give you actual risk. They give you relative risk. And you can skew anybody by using fear, as we talked, I talked about earlier, to get them down a path that you want them to take. And this is the only path that they know. So every woman who's over 35, and by the way, 35 is a bogus number. Totally. doesn't mean anything. It's completely, it was a completely made up number. It had nothing to do with the science behind it. I mean, you're telling me that somebody who's 34 years old in 11 months is okay, but the, suddenly they turn 35 and they're not okay. But this is sort of the mentality that they're stuck in. And you know, I feel for my colleagues because they're stuck in this hamster wheel and they're stuck on an algorithm. And every woman who falls into some label or some category will be put on an algorithm. And even the, the whole mentality of the, the obstetrical world is about pregnancy as risk. I mean, my own college, the American College of OBGYN, who I have a lot of disagreements with, some of their academic stuff is actually pretty good, but, but their policymaking is based on the idea that they say this. They say that pregnancy itself is a high-risk condition. So that's how they view everything through that prism and, and everything about it. And so when you go to the doctor, you are started with a problem list. If you look at any, look at their paperwork, it'll have at the top, it'll say problem list. It doesn't say diagnosis list or something. It says problem list, already framing the way things are looked at. And the number one problem for every pregnant woman is what? That she's pregnant. That's the number one problem. And that's not a way to think about it. And, and this was highlighted for me once in my office after 30 some years of practicing and maybe eight or nine years already doing home birth. I had a woman come in. I wish I remembered her name because she deserved great credit. And I was taking her history. And when you take a history, you ask them about their chief complaint. Why are you here? And then you ask questions about that. Then you ask about past medical history, past surgical history, family history, review of systems. And that's how sort of a history is taken, meds and allergies, that sort of thing. So when somebody comes to see me, their chief complaint, again, just think of the, think of the language there, is that she's pregnant and she's looking for options. So when I got to past medical history, this woman had no problem. She was just coming in because she wanted the idea of a home birth with an OB. I got to past medical history and I said to her, so do you have any other medical problems? Which is how it rolls off the tongue of every physician always. And she looks at me and she goes, what's the first one? And I'm thinking to myself, do you have any other medical problems? So I'm already, even me, the home birth doctor person is still using language that implies that the very first problem she has is that she's pregnant. And that's not the case. And that's one of the things about the midwifery model of care that's so valuable is they don't consider you a patient. They consider you a client. You're only a patient if you get sick. And I really want to make it clear for the listeners that the midwifery model of care is a model of care. It doesn't mean that all midwives practice that kind of care. Some of them practice a very medicalized version of care. And there are some OBs that practice a very relaxed 
midwifery kind of care, but it's a, it's the style of care. It's giving people more time. It's listening. It's shared decision making. It's going through all options. And you cannot have a midwifery style practice in the current medical model because there isn't time because of the economics of the situation. Doctors have to do volume. And when you do volume, you cannot give the kind of care that a woman deserves when she's pregnant. It's not the same as coming in because you have a rash on your elbow and you need five minutes to talk about your rash on your elbow. This is a life event, which has all kinds of questions. And the woman has all kinds of psychological and life history that is unique, that's independent. And when we put people on an algorithm, we can't cater to their independence. And that's where you end up with this whole thing that everyone over 35 needs this, or everyone who you know, has this on an ultrasound needs to have this, this test, this, this test, this test, this test. And so we'll get to that. We'll get down the road to that as you go. I don't want to, I don't want to get too far over my skis because I know you have lots of questions. Yeah. Well, I mean, and I would love to get your insight because so many of the women listening that are struggling with fertility, like we all wait for this day, this happy day when by hook or by crook, we get this positive pregnancy test. And, you know, the first thing we're hit with is all of these statistics. We're hit with, oh, what are you going to do now? You know, we got to wait to see if this pregnancy is viable till 10 weeks. Like it's, it seems very impersonal. And as you say, medicalized. So what would you, I mean, as an OBGYN, like would seem to me that you have some ideas about how you would approach a woman who has the unique situation of having struggled with fertility and now she's pregnant, like what would Dr. Fishbein do? Would you, you know, it would be awesome to hear your opinion on that. Okay. So again, let's back up for just a second. And I want to, I want to finish with what I said about risk. Just because something is, has risk does not make it high risk. Life in itself is high, is risky. Every day you get out of bed, there's a chance you won't make it to the evening. That's just, the, that's just the way life is. But we wouldn't say that life is high risk. Or some people might, but that's, then they've got a real problem if they think that way. <laughs> but, well, they're stressing themselves all day long. I mean, and that's not a great way to live. But fertility is a really interesting thing because people think that, oh, suddenly when you get into your mid-30s or late-30s or whatever else, that it's over. And yet you've been taught since you were a little girl in the modern feminist era that you can have it all, baby. And you need to have a career and you need to compete with men and you need to be out in the workplace and you can delay childbearing and you can freeze your eggs and you can do all this stuff. And then, and then it turns around that suddenly you're 40 years old and you don't have a partner and you don't, you know, you're very successful in your career, but, but is that really where you want to be? So again, we've been culturally brainwashed to believe, to forget biology. So let's talk a little bit of biology and about, about fertility. So the term that is used when we talk about the ability of a female mammal to conceive in any given cycle is called fecundity. And the fecundity of a rabbit is about 99%. In other words, every time they're in heat, they get pregnant. Okay. But that's because they are a, a, a you know, they're a prey species. They're not a predator species. Um, the higher up on the food chain you are, the less successful you are at, at getting pregnant in any given cycle. And it, is, it makes perfect sense. Nature isn't stupid. Nature designs things in a way. And if we just stop for a second and back up and just understand that, we would probably all be better off. So the fecundity of a, of a college student who's 22 years old 
in any given cycle is only the conception rate is only between 20 and 25%. But let's just say for easy math, it's 20%. So that means if you have 80 college women having unprotected sex every month, only 20 are going to get pregnant. Now, you ask college women who have unprotected sex, but they, they think they're going to think it's much higher than that. Right. And so after the second month of the remaining 80, 20% more will get pregnant. So now you have 16 more. So now you have 36 pregnant and 64 not pregnant. Another month goes by and now you have 13 more or 20% of the 64. And so now you're at 49% pregnant and 51% not pregnant. So even after three months of unprotected sex in the most fertile group of women we have in, in, in our country, over 50% of them will not be pregnant. So to think that you want to conceive and you should, it should happen right away is sort of an irrational thought born of not being well, well, you know, educated or being told wrong things by your high school biology teacher or whatever it is who told you, who told you these things. So, and then remember of the, of the 49% who got pregnant in the first three months, 20% of those are even higher nowadays because of certain environmental factors are going to miscarry. And then they have to go back around and be thrown back into the other group. So we're not like rabbits. We don't, we aren't as successful as rabbits, nor should we be, or we'd, or we'd be a planet. I mean, we have 8 billion people on the planet as it is. We would have, we would, we would do ourselves over in a few generations. It would be done. So not getting pregnant right away is normal. It's the norm. So one of the things we have to do in, in, is to try to eliminate the nervousness, the anxiety and the fear of that I'm not going to get pregnant, I'm not going to get pregnant, I'm not going to get pregnant. Because another thing about nature that's very smart is nature decides that it's not wise for a mammal that's under stress to get pregnant. Because nature thinks that un- stress means famine, predators, forest fire, whatever. And it doesn't think that it means that you've read, you know, you're, you're Googling Dr. Google and you're getting stressed out. It doesn't know the difference. It just knows you're putting out stress hormones. Stress hormones will make it less likely that you'll ovulate regularly or that maybe you'll prep the lining of your uterus correctly or whatever else. And then we have all the environmental factors as well, not just the vaccine issue that we have now, but but 5G and GMO and you know other things that are toxins in the environment that can affect that sort of thing. So, you know, so the best chance you have of getting pregnant is to be in love, be happy, not worry, don't focus on it, don't, you know, don't like sit there with your monitors. And again, some people are going to be mad at me for saying this because they find security in doing that. And I understand that. I'm not picking on anyone individually. I'm just telling you what nature has in store for us. And so nature, by waiting until it's safe to get pregnant, nature therefore ensures the best chance of survival. That's what it does. So that's fecundity. So now what happens is say you get pregnant when you get pregnant, you no longer have a fertility problem. Fertility is about getting pregnant. You now potentially can have you know, a genetic problem or a miscarriage problem or a keeping a pregnancy problem. And so I guess it's still under the blanket of fertility, but it should be categorized differently than somebody who can't get pregnant. Somebody who's had three miscarriages needs to be evaluated, but, somebody, but the evaluation is completely different than someone who's had no pregnancies and has been trying for nine months or 10 months or a year or two years or five years or whatever it's been. And so the chance of miscarriage, we used to quote when I was training was about 30% of all conceptions will miscarry. 
But now because of the data that's coming out about COVID and stuff, I'm hearing more that it used to be 15 or 20% of miscarriages because now it's risen and we're seeing a higher, a higher miscarriage rate. But miscarriage is actually sometimes, sometimes it's obviously iatrogenically caused or, or environmentally caused, but many times it's, it's, it's nature's design to get rid of something that wasn't correct in the first place. The leading cause of miscarriage is probably just genetic defect that's usually not hereditary, but just accidental. And so it's sad, it's tragic, it's a loss, but it's something that, that when you think about the complexity that makes you and me up, Roseanne, that one sperm with 23 chromosomes in it enters an egg with 23 chromosomes in it and makes one cell. And from that cell, you then have cells dividing. Some of those cells will become placenta and membranes, and other of those cells will become baby. How does it know? I mean, it's amazing. And then the part that becomes baby, some of those cells will become fingernails, and some of those cells will become pancreas, and some of those cells will become eyeballs. And what's amazing is how do they know? They all came from one cell. How did they know? And then how do they end up in the right place? How come I don't have a pancreas coming off my forehead? I know it makes you laugh, but it's simply amazing. But it's so complex that to think that something isn't going to go wrong some of the time, you know, and nature takes care of it most of the time that way. Sometimes you have things that linger on for a long time and and they need medical intervention, like a, a DNC for a blighted ovum or a fetal demise. That's a little bit later on, but most of the time, those things will be taken care of. And some of them are very early and we don't even know how early, I mean, because we, because a woman's like two days late on her period, it's a little heavier than usual. And they, they didn't run any sort of blood pregnancy test. A urine pregnancy test would never be positive anyway at that point. So they don't even know. So there are probably more miscarriages than we know about. That's where I think I got the 30% number from, but, but whatever number it is, it's a normal thing that happens as well. There are now man-made issues that are causing more of them. And if you want to go there later in the conversation, we can. What I'm trying to say is it's complex. It's not simple. It is a design. And oh, and then getting back to the age, yeah, as you get older, a couple things happen. It's a little more difficult to conceive because the eggs are a little harder to fertilize and they're slightly more likely to develop a chromosomal abnormality. But the idea that because you're 35 or older that you're going to have a baby with that, with, that has Down syndrome or some other trisomy or some other genetic abnormality is still really small. It's really small. I mean, well, it depends. See, really small is not a good term. That, that I'm, I'm guilty of doing, saying what I could accuse my doctor friends of. It's, it's a small percentage. It's age-related. There's scales. You can actually look them up. But the risk of Down syndrome baby, a baby with Down syndrome, you have to, I, I want to use the language correctly there is about one in 200 at age 35. So it's a 99.5% chance it's not going to happen. And most conceptions with trisomies or chromosomal abnormalities, they'll miscarry anyway. So the rarer one that goes to term or that goes to where you have genetic diagnosis and then have to decide, make a decision, a very personal decision for you and your family as to where to go with that. And that's not a conversation that's, that I'm an expert at. That's a conversation that belongs to the woman and her family and her life sit- life situation. So we'll just yeah. leave that at that. Okay. Well, so it, that's that. It, as I was listening, I was like, man, I wish I was in Southern California at the time I was trying to conceive. I'm like, if only I heard some of what Dr. Fishbein is talking about here, I would have felt completely different because when my husband and I were trying to conceive, the, the messaging that we got was, look, 
you're, you know, you're over the hill. It's time, you know, you need to go straight into IVF. You know, you can try for 15 minutes, but if it's not working, like straight into IVF. Like, and at that point, I wasn't awake, Dr. Fishbein. I have to admit, I was not awake at that point. I had no license, no agency. I figured the white coats knew better than me. And I had com- completely abdicated my power and found myself having the first round of IVF literally within weeks. And I was not prepared. Like I was not at all prepared. Not only was I admittedly and embarrassingly ignorant, I thought that IVF just meant I'm going to go have this treatment and I'll be pregnant by May. You know, like I honestly thought that that's just what happened. And that took me down a road of an awakening that I had like no clue was waiting for me. Yeah, I hear you. The expectations are often not well explained and blown out of proportion. I truly am not an expert in IVF, so I wouldn't want to sit here and give counseling on that. But no. what I am a sort of an expert is, is the fact that, that you said that, that the white coats know more than you do. Okay. Well, that's true. They do know more than you do. The problem is, is that knowledge does not equal wisdom. And it's really important to know that, that they have a lot of information in their noggin, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they know how to apply that on any individual situation. So, you know, and also, and again, I'm not saying this is true for all of my, my colleagues, but all the financial incentives in medicine are to do more and not less. And so whether it's when you have a pregnancy and they want to do all these labs and all these tests on you and all these ultrasounds and non-stress tests and all these things, you know, a lot of them are not necessary, but they'll scare you into believing they're necessary. They'll implant these fears. They'll tell you at your 20-week scan that you have a perfectly normal baby, but there's this little white echogenic focus in the heart that doesn't really mean anything as an isolated finding. So I'm not really worried about it, but I want to see you back in six weeks to look at it. So what is the woman thinking about for the next six weeks? Sick baby. That there's something wrong with my baby's heart, even though there's nothing wrong with your baby's heart, because the doctors have knowledge, but they don't know how to express that in a way that is reassuring. Or they purposely express it in a way because that's how they were taught and that generates more revenue for them or their their practice. And what's really hard about that is you really want to trust your doctor, but they've proven over and over again that they're not trustworthy. And that may mean he may be or she may be the nicest person in the world and they may have been doing your pap smear for a decade and then you love them and you talk about, you know, growing flowers and 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 going to concerts and you and you have a really nice relationship with them. It doesn't necessarily mean anything though, because they often will tell you things that if you'd actually start to look into them, you'll find out aren't true. And at what point when someone starts to tell you things that are questionable or, or untrue or don't sit well with your inner sixth sense gut, do you say, well, they keep telling me things that aren't true. Why do I keep going back there? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's that was kind of the point because you were talking about, you know, nature knows when you're stressed. I mean, and this is not a great time to have a baby, but Dr. Fishman, I was so lacking. And I know so many of the women that I work with, so many of the women listening to this, like, we're in such fear that this dream, this desire that we have in our heart to be moms is not going to happen that the minute somebody says, you know, X, Y, Z, we go into freak out. Like if somebody, and I'm a reasonable person, sort of, you know, if somebody had just stopped me, doc, and said, hey, 
you're working 90 hours a week, you do sexual assault cases, you might want to reduce your stress, maybe change your diet, maybe get a little more exercise and, and maybe cut out a little bit of that coffee. Like I was only 37 when this started and at a healthy weight, generally speaking, healthy lifestyle, that would have changed my world, doc. If somebody just stopped and spoke sense to me, rather than immediately showing me this horrific chart that were for a thousand and one reasons why it wouldn't be possible for me. They didn't tell you any of that? No, absolutely not. It was, I remember when I went in, it was like, okay, they, you know, transvaginal ultrasound. Okay. And you're how old? Ooh, all right. IVF is going to be your best shot and donor eggs. And I remember sitting catatonic in the clinic like this, you know, donor eggs. Like I've barely even been trying a year. Like that's the sixth sense that you're talking about. My gut was like, no, this isn't right. Like, but I didn't have the languaging. And again, I didn't like, I most people don't, they, they don't have the tools to do that. I would just like to your listeners to understand that everything that you said that they, that they should have told you to do, everyone should be doing that anyway. Whether you're male or female, you know, working 90 hours a week, being stressed out, drinking too much coffee, smoking cigarettes, drinking alcohol, not exercising, not getting sunlight. I mean, do I, do, do doctors really need to tell people this? Well, I apparently mean, like, lo- like, I mean, I didn't learn this any, you know, but I'm one of those women that you're talking about. I was brainwashed doc. I thought that career was going to make me happy. I thought I could, I had bigger balls than any man that I was, you know, like I had this whole like alleged feminist nonsense going in mm-hmm. my head thinking that there was going to be no consequence and that I could just outwork anything that came in. It was a very masculine way of living. I didn't even have any contact with my feminine. Like I had no clue. And the only reason why I knew anything about, well, and I barely knew much about my own anatomy was because I was a sexual assault prosecutor. I didn't, like, I knew I had stuff. I, I didn't know what it did. It was mysterious. And I'm like a highly educated adult. And if I don't know this, I know other women just like me in my audience feel this way too, which is why this conversation with you is so critically important because I want to help bring women off the edge because everyone is in a panic and just not critically thinking about what's being thrown into them. Because I went for it, doc. I, I, I went in and did it at IVF with not even a blood test prior. It was just aged number of follicles. That was it. And, and do you uh, have- How much did that cost you? 20 grand. Yeah, there you go. There's a difference between nature and human nature. Human nature is to be the seven deadly sins of you know, those things, uh, and greed is one of them. But nature is something that we've gotten away from so much, so especially in the big cities and stuff like that, where people are away from the earth, and they don't think about that. But here's a, here's a question for you and your listeners. Why does a girl get her period when she's 12 years old? No clue. That's the problem. Yeah. What does the period signify? Hormonal change into adulthood. Yeah, that you're ovulating. Yeah. Right. So why would nature want a 12-year-old to ovulate? Okay. So I don't want to pin you down on this. So here, <laughs> like here's, no clue. Here, here's, here's just a theory. Nature works on, on millennia and eons. Nature does, you know, 10,000 years ago, the life expectancy was what, 20? Yeah. Okay. So you had to reproduce at a young age. Now, I'm not suggesting anywhere, and nobody write in, and say that I'm suggesting that 12-year-olds should be having babies. But nature doesn't know that. Nature still thinks it's 10,000 years ago. 
We're changing it faster than we could have ever changed it in the history of mankind with all the epigenetic things that are affecting us in the microbiome and other things. But it's still nature's design that at 12 or 13 years old or whenever you get your first period, that the only reason to do that is because nature wants you to procreate. Society doesn't, but nature does, right? But we're having babies now long after women would have been, women and men would have been dead 10,000 years ago, but nature doesn't, doesn't move that long. So it's not normal for women to get pregnant in their 30s and 40s biologically. Sociologically, it's, it's perfectly normal. But you have to expect that with any time you mess with Mother Nature and her design, there are going to be downstream consequences. And one of those consequences is going to be delayed or altered fertility or delayed or altered genetics or whatever, because nature didn't design 35, 40, 45-year-old women to get pregnant. Culture does. Culture wants it to happen, but nature doesn't want it to happen. So just keep that in mind when you are raising your daughters, not to go out and not to go to college or not to, not to get a job and do that thing, but to, to keep that in mind, that to keep nature in mind. Always keep nature in mind. What does nature want? When we locked people down and took away all the things that make us healthy, social connection, sunlight, vitamin D, exercise, what did we think was going to happen? They don't think. They don't think because they're either idiots, evil, or evil idiots. But there's not much choice in between because they're corrupt. I mean, there was so much money to be made in, in what that happened. And it's the same thing here. I'm not saying that fertility specialists are the ones causing women to delay getting pregnant, but there's certainly a market for it. And I don't blame them for charging what they charge. That's a whole other story. But it gets back to the whole idea of what we're doing by delaying childbearing for whatever reason, no relationship, job, whatever, stress, famine, war, we're defying what nature wants your body to do. And we can see that because when a woman is, has normal periods, say every 30 days she has a period, and suddenly there's 9-11 happens or something, and there's stress throughout the family or the family members, whatever, and, and there's stress. What will happen often is the woman will begin to like not ovulate and she'll skip her periods or she'll have dysfunctional bleeding. She'll have abnormal bleeding because the uterus is waiting for signals. The, I, I liken the uterus to like a platoon out on patrol. And I liken the, the ovaries to being the forward operating base. And I like the pituitary gland in the brain to like be the Pentagon. So anytime there's a breakdown in communication between the Pentagon and the forward operating base or between the forward operating base and the platoon on patrol, the platoon doesn't know what to do. Do we, do we advance? Do we retreat? Or do we hold our position? So the same stress that could cause a woman to not ovulate for several months could have a different woman have what's called dysfunctional uterine bleeding. And she could be bleeding all the time because the uterus is waiting for the ovary to tell it. I mean, yeah, it's waiting for the ovary to tell it what to do. And the ovary is shut down because the pituitary says, you know, we're closed for business right now because we have to deal with this thing over here. Because nature doesn't want you to get pregnant when circumstances are not optimal for survival. And it doesn't know that we're 10,000 years in the future. So we have to think about that. So when you're 40 years old and you're not getting pregnant, right, that's actually normal. So you have to understand, you have to be respectful of the, of the biology that goes on 
And if we could, if we would teach our young girls in, in health class in eighth grade, this sort of thing, as opposed to the crap that they're teaching them now about, you have no idea what sex you are until you, what you can, and you can change tomorrow and all that stuff. And again, I'll probably get mail for that too, but I don't care. That's um, okay. We can take right. it. Right. No, I, I, I get it. But you know, I mean, you could teach both actually, but I, I'm not for the second one, but I, but it should certainly be teaching eighth grade girls about this sort of biology that I talked about so that then they can make, they can make an informed decision, Roseanne, about whether or not they want to look for a, a partner or not have a partner and maybe just have be a single mom or, or freeze their eggs, which I'm not a big fan of because it's just sort of propagating the whole problem. But I understand where they're coming from or whether they want to go get a career and do all that stuff. And at least they understood that the choice they made might lead to the problem that you might have had in the future. Well, I think you're hitting on a really important topic that doesn't get a lot of airplay because it's counter to the narrative is, you know, like we're, we're conditioned as women to think that the strong thing, the empowered thing is to go out and get 15 degrees, slay during the day, come home, you know, and, and do it all over again. And that that's natural. And that this desire to have love and a family and all that is weak. And I remember, I remember thinking to myself, I'm like, well, you know, I'm supposed to go out and get a degree so that I don't have to depend on a man and all this other stuff. And, and it's not about dependence. It's about a complete and full, happy life. And that's what I see in my practice all the time. You know, women with letters coming after their names, we, you know, it's great and we're empowered and we have, you know, incredible earning potential and we're making a difference in the world. But we have completely forgotten that we're women and and that we have this longing because like, you know, I could be working with, you know, clients that are physicians, lawyers, teachers, nurses. We all end up in the same place saying, is this all there is? And here I here I've been suppressing this desire to have a baby for so long to get to some place that here I am in my mid 40s. And, and here, and it, you know, without the baby that I want and the life that I want. So no, it's not your fault. It, it's not your fault. It, it's, it's, well, it, a minimal part is, is your fault because you're listening to, yeah. you're listening to the propaganda and, and look at the culture from the time when I, uh, when I was a younger kid and the Virginia Slims commercials came out, they were cigarettes and they said, you know, the theme was you can have it all baby. And that, that being a homemaker and a mother was something to be frowned upon because you didn't have a career. And even to this day, pop culture looks at uh, women who get married young, have seven kids, that there's something wrong with them. And they're mocked. You know, um, I love the South Park guys, but but when they wrote the Book of Mormon, which is a very funny play if you've ever seen it, but you can only write a play like that about Mormons because Mormons have a good sense of humor when that regards them. But you, you know, you, you, you couldn't really write a play like that about Muslims or Orthodox Jews or, or even the Amish who have lots and lots of children. And that's what their life focus is because they're not focused on Beyonce or, you know, whatever, or Kim Kardashian or drinking and partying and going to raves and these sorts of things. They have a different priority because that's what the pop culture is pushing. 
Because ultimately, if you put it all together with everything that's been going on in the last years, you start to see more clearly that this is ultimately an agenda from some larger world order thing, whether it's Agenda 2030 or the World Economic Forum or whatever else. It's really to sort of depopulate the planet and, it, and it's transhumanism. It's, it's like we're going to be growing babies in a, in a test tube pretty soon anyway. So, you know, why should you give up your life and, and have your body change and have your, you know, I won't even get into the parts that women complain about after they've given childbirth, but, but, um, yeah, I, why would you do that? Uh, because the culture doesn't want you to do that because it's, it's not commercial enough. They, 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 they don't want you to homeschool. They don't want you, they want to have your families, your kids, your reproductive systems. They want it all to be controlled centrally. And one of the ways to prevent people from having children is to convince them that you shouldn't have children in your twenties or thirties because you don't even know what you're doing yet. And uh, I would tell you that that's all backwards. And again, that's because they're, they're, they're anti nature. Um, yeah, their, their whole their whole idea of saving the planet is actually to destroy is to destroy the planet but then if you watch public policy on just about anything including medicine right now pretty much everything they tell you is the opposite of what a sane person would do and that's coming out more and more you know there was a study dr fishbein that came out in 2009 from the wharton school of business that showed that women between 1972 and 2006, actually, you know, with all of, you know, the, the women's movement and all of these things, today, we're actually dramatically less happy with all sure. the education, all of the, the freedoms that we have. Like, women are paying the price. Like, women in their 50s and 60s are on antidepressants at record levels. Like, it's insane. So all of these measures that we were promised would make us happy, the money, the career, all these other things, it, it's like the data is showing, like, these women are rushing to have babies because they know there has to be more. They can't outrun their biology. You know, they they want to have this family that they were told was wrong. Yeah, and, and again, it gets back to the idea this, that what everything they were told was anti-nature. Yeah. Uh, it, 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 you know, you, 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 what you just said, if you just, people just rewind it 30 seconds and listen to what you just said, all these things they told these women was, was anti-nature. And, you know, when you do that sort of thing, you end up with unhappiness and with problems. And then, of course, what's their solution to the problem of causing more women to have depression? It's big pharma. It's to give them SSRIs, which recently we found out and they knew a long time ago. Don't work. It's a billion dollar scam to give you a, a ser selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor like Prozac or whatever the other ones are. And they found that that doesn't work. Just like they've just thought there's data coming out on, on statins. My internist wanted to put everybody who had a cholesterol over 200 on a statin, thinking it's going to make them live longer, not realizing, well, wait a minute, why does nature have us have cholesterol in the first place? Maybe it's not the cholesterol that's the problem. Maybe it's the food I'm eating that's the problem. But no, we're going to treat because the pharmacy can't make any money on doing nothing. So if you're healthy, they don't need you. But if we can make you chronically ill by vaccinating the shit out of you and by, you know, and, and making you do all these, and then we have a, we have a patient for life. 
And they've got people on SSRIs, a large percent of the population, people on statins. And, you know, it's kind of like, don't people watch the movies? Don't you read the novels? This stuff doesn't end well. It always ends poorly. I mean, you've got stories of thalidomide and you've got stories of diethylstilbestrol and you've got stories of Vioxx. And, you know, the COVID-19 vaccine is going to outweigh all of those in the damage that it's going to have caused. Yeah, And they knew it, but but the problem is they knew it ahead of time and they did it anyway. Yeah, and and it's exciting that there are more and more people waking up, but I think the hard part is being willing to wrap our heads around the fact that we got scammed. I think that is, you know, that's the cognitive dissonance I think that you were talking about before that. And when I think back, even when we think about fertility, we tell ourselves, oh, well, this person's trying to help me. Like, you know, and then it's like, well, they don't exactly have a great track record, Big Pharma. Big Pharma's been, you know, sued to like, to high heaven. And they still keep going and nobody's stopping them. And and women are being denied basic information about how to be more empowered in, in taking control of their own health care and taking control over, you know, their their own health destiny and ultimately fertility destiny because they get scared out of their wits. Right. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, we we've sort of taking this to its its logical end is that they don't have your best interest at heart. They often never did. Now, that's not to say, of course, that they don't have miracle medical cures and miracle surgeries and miracle things. And this gets, every time I do a podcast and pretty much when I listen to other people's podcasts, they always throw out the disclaimer that we're not throwing the entire baby out with the bathwater. There are some good things that the medical system does. There are miraculous yeah. things that that infertility specialists do. It's not their fault that women are waiting until they're having fertility problems to go see. So they're just meeting a market need and they could do amazing things. The idea that you can create a, a, a fetus in a, in a laboratory and that you can re-implant it and it, and it grows and becomes a, a, a beautiful baby. Ever since Louise Brown was the very first IVF baby, from what I understand. And uh, th- that's amazing. But we have to understand that the majority of things that are going on with them are not okay. And the cognitive dissonance you mentioned is very strong. And one of the coping mechanisms for cognitive dissonance is to ignore or belittle any evidence that doesn't support your position. And so when somebody has chosen to believe this stuff over and over again, and then someone comes along and points it out, it's uncomfortable. And so you often will attack the messenger. I give you a, a, a everyday example. Say one of your listeners goes out to uh, Costco and buys a, you know, a fifty-inch flat-screen smart TV, and then somebody comes over who says, "Oh, that's a nice new TV. Where, where'd you get it? I got it at Costco. Oh, you should have got it here because you could have got it for this much less." Right? How do you feel when somebody says that to you unsolicited? You're a little aggravated with them. Yeah, yeah. Right? Why are you telling me that? Why do I need to know? I, I happy with my TV. You just made me unhappy with my TV because I could have saved $40 by getting it over at Walmart or something, whatever. But people do that. And they sometimes, they often do it without thinking. But it gets you riled up a little bit. And some people get so riled up that they attack. Yeah, and we've lost the ability to have a subtle conversation where two things can be true at the same time. Yes, right? 
where we can be like, okay, well, we we receive this social conditioning that we're supposed to do X, Y, Z as women. But, you know, you can also do other things and, and that be okay. Like, I mean, I have to admit, like when I was going through law school, I would look at women who were having babies and think, poor thing, right? Like the idea wow. of doing that, like it was, it's, it's horrific. But that's not because I'm an evil person. It's because having a baby was horrific to you, to your mind in law school. Wow. Well, yeah, because I was like, why would you throw away your freedom? Right. And, and it's, it's baffling to me today, right? It's that hubris and that, that ignorance that, hey, two choices can be wonderful. They're just a reflection of what that person values. One's not better than the other. But what's interesting is that, you know, I, I agree with you, you know, fertility specialists are, are in some ways very heroic in helping us undo the damage from decades of this programming that women, like, because what are we going to do? Leave women in their 40s out to dry? No. Like, th- that seems crazy too, right? So that we're... Well, they're- think about it though. I, I agree with you. You shouldn't. And, and our culture is able to do that. But nature would say, yeah. Yeah. N- nature is ruthless in that way. Like, she is exacting in her justice. And so it's it's fascinating. So let's talk about, okay, you know, we're, we're in this place where women are starting to wake up. What would you encourage women to do, okay, once they find out that they're pregnant, whether it's naturally, IVF, whatever? Like, what are some common sense things that women who are thinking can do to take back their license and agency and make sure that they get the care that they deserve? Well, one of the things they should really do is they should be trusting in in that nature's design works really well most of the time. And they should seek out care, not based on where their insurance card tells them to go or because they've been going to someplace for a long time. This is a life event. You've heard Bliss and me talk about the fact on the podcast that that when you have a wedding, you plan everything. You plan the color of the napkins, you plan the dresses, you plan the venue, you plan the food, you plan the invitations, you plan all that stuff. You wouldn't let a third party come in and tell you, you know, where you can, you know, have your event and who you can invite and invite people you don't like and and you know, you can have the fish but not the chicken and that you you would you wouldn't do that. But yet when it comes to birth, which is the probably the most sentinel event in a woman's life, you know, her marriage is something that is obviously extremely important, but half of them end in divorce anyway. But uh, it is an extremely important day, but there's nothing like the day that you give birth to your child, no matter how that baby comes forth. And so you should treat it like that. And you should not treat it like a medical problem like you would if you had an appendicitis and you'd use your insurance card. You need to think differently about pregnancy. And so you need, you know, I would tell young women to start saving. If your state has a um, health savings account, you should put money away in there. It's tax deductible or tax free afterwards, or I don't know exactly how it works, but you can do that. You know, we put $20, $30 a month away into an account by the, by, you know, when you're 18, when you're 28 years old, you have several thousands of dollars in there. And if you want to hire, go outside of your network or hire a doctor at a hospital that has a better reputation or, or, you know, don't be hesitant to drive 50 miles or 100 miles or cross state lines. And I would always tell people that even if you plan to deliver in the hospital with a doctor, seek some prenatal care with a midwife 
because you're going to get much better attention to the things that are going to keep you healthy from her. You're going to talk about your diet. You're going to talk about stress reduction. You're going to talk about your relationship. You're going to talk about exercise. You're going to talk about it because you can do in 60 minutes a lot more than you can do in 10, six to 10 minutes, which is what you get with your OB on it in general because they're doing volume and your midwife is not. So pay out of pocket, make it, make it have value if it has value and understand that there's very little that you do that's going to cause a normal pregnancy to miscarry, right? Short of really falling out of a third story window or doing a cocaine binge for three straight days or something like that, you're not going to cause a miscarriage by bumping your abdomen with a, with a grocery cart or by, by accidentally, or before you know you're pregnant, having a couple glasses of wine or being next to somebody who's got a, uh, a cold or a flu. That doesn't cause a, nature is stronger than that. And if you have a normal developing fetus inside of you, it's not going to fall out because of any of those things. So you don't have to really worry about that stuff. This nature is beautiful. It's kind of like breathing or digestion for your listeners. Fortunately, we don't have to think about it. Can you imagine what it'd be like every day to have to think about 40 times a minute or 20 times a minute thinking about breathing in and breathing out? I mean, that would, you'd go nuts. It happens whether you think about it or not because it's a primitive brain function. Same thing is with conceiving, growing, and uh, going into labor with a baby. It's all primitive brain function. And when you start to think about things or use your cognitive brain, you actually interfere with that. So breathing can be altered not by normal breathing, primitive brain, but by cognitive brain. Say you have to give a speech or you have a court appearance to bring it home. And you may be a little nervous about it. You start to hyperventilate a little bit or you get a little nauseous in your intestinal tract, which normally works without you thinking about it. Suddenly you get, you know, nauseous or you get diarrhea because you've got a big presentation at work or something. Um, that's your cognitive brain overriding the normal functions. And the same thing happens to when you're pregnant. It's not something you have to think about. And as a matter of fact, you should be bathing your developing baby and its new neurons and its epigenetics in dopamine and oxytocin and and all those good things. Don't watch the news. Don't watch horror movies. You know, don't get in arguments. You know, if somebody does annoys you, like someone in your family, then you know, don't share with them all this information that's going on with you. Don't tell them what your birth plan is. Don't even tell them your due date. I'm getting way ahead of your question about early pregnancy. No, but I, no, 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 but it's so good. It's so good, Doctor Fishbein, because these are real practical things that if you go to a medicalized practitioner, you're not going to get. Like, I remember when, when I was going through fertility treatment and I asked, hey, could stress be impacting this? No, there's not enough studies. And I'm like, you know, so it's it's these kinds of things that you're sharing that really matter. I mean, but then there there's also like boots on the ground things like you know, I remember when, when I found out I was pregnant, they immediately wanted to give me a flu shot. I'm like, what? Like, why am I going to do that? Like, you know, it's like, we'll do things without thinking about them when pregnant women won't even touch coffee. Right. But yet we'll allow people to inject us with all kinds of crazy things without ever fully apprising us of the potential consequences of that. No, this is a real problem with what's called skewed informed consent. Um, and I would just call it basically lying. None of the vaccines that they offer you in pregnancy, whether it be the Tdap, the flu, the COVID, and now the RSV, have ever been tested in a randomized placebo controlled trial for safety. Ever. None of them. Alone. 
And yet at the 28-week visit, they want to give you five vaccines, none of which have been tested singularly, let alone the possibility of, um, of synergy uh, causing problems, giving five different toxins at the same time, five different shots with different toxins in it, some of which contain aluminum. And if you get the flu shot from a multi-dose vial, you're going to get uh, thimerosal, which is a form of mercury. You would, you, you would never do that. It violates every aspect of something called the precautionary principle, which is a principle that's been followed through medicine, even in medieval times, where you do not test untest, use untested products on pregnant and lactating women. You just don't do it. Yet the American College of OBGYN is all in. They've taken money from the CDC to promote the COVID vaccine in pregnancy. And they'll use the argument that, well, pregnant women are more likely to get really sick if they get the flu or they get the COVID vaccine. First of all, I'll tell you that that's not always, that's not necessarily true. They're cherry picking their data. But the second thing is, what does more likely mean? All right. If it's one in a thousand, if you're not pregnant and it's two in a thousand and you're, if you're pregnant, that's more likely, but it's still zero, essentially. I mean, I, you know, that's just an example. Those numbers are not, I just pulled them out of a hat. They're not accurate, but they're for example purposes. So when doctors use terms like more likely, or higher risk, again, I, I can't reiterate this enough. Pin them down. Ask them to say, well, you're saying it's more likely. What is the actual likeliness of me getting so sick when I'm pregnant with the flu that I'm going to be hospitalized? And I can almost guarantee you with 100% certainty they either don't know or they'll make up a number. Because you have to dig for that sort of information, and they're not going to do it. They're going to repeat what the CDC or what ACOG tells them to say, or what their boss tells them to say. Because there's no money in not giving vaccines. It takes more time to counsel people about why vaccines are bad than it takes to give a shot in the arm of a vaccine where they make money from it. And people will say, that's not fair. My doctor would never do that. Oh, yeah? <laughs> they would. They would. Some, some practices get paid a bonus if they have a certain percentage of their clients that get vaccinated. And I will also tell you this, this is a piece of information that is not well known. But that in, in lot, lots of HMO and corporate medicine, your doctor's annual salary is based on your doctor's productivity from the year before. So the more codes that they file the year before, the more ultrasounds they order, for, even though they're not doing them, but the more revenue they generate. And by the way, this is true in the National Health Service in England as well. People think, well, it's the government paying for it. Well, the hospitals are still getting paid. And the hospital's payments are based on what they billed last year. So if they bill less last year than they should, then they're going to get less this year for what they do. So they bill more. Again, you know, people think it's, well, it's free. No, no, no. It's your tax dollars paying for that. And the hospitals aren't doing it for free. The hospitals are getting paid in funds from the National Health Service. And in our country, it's exactly the same thing. Hospitals aren't doing this for free. Even if you have an HMO where you're paying, uh, you know, $100 a month or whatever it is you think, and, and so everything is free. No, no, it's not free. It's being budgeted and and when you find the unethical be the unethical behavior of basing your salary on what your production is and a doctor knowing that the doctor's going to you know whether he's a good person or not everyone's tempted and you're going to you know what's the downside of me telling you to get a vaccine i might get yelled at on monday because i didn't meet my vaccine quota or i could tell you to get a vaccine and i make more money next year you figure it out it's yeah. awful the system is completely broken it cannot be fixed. People think they can tinker with it here or, there, or let's have the government pass new legislation. When has the government passing new legislation 
ever created something that's more efficient. I'll wait. I'll just wait. Let's wait for a bit here. We don't even have to wait. All we have to do is look at the VA. Look at what we've done to our veterans. Look, look what we've done to our roads. Look what we've done to our schools. Look what we've done to our military. Look what we've done. To, I mean, it's, it's everywhere. I mean, well, but this is really good, though. I mean, I, I think it's important for women to hear these things because instead of walking in to a clinic without any license and agency, what this information does is put you on equal footing to have a thoughtful, intelligent conversation with somebody who is supposed to be a team member in your healthcare. And if you don't like what they're saying or they're disregarding your legitimate concern, then that's a problem. That's a big red flag and you might want to run out of there screaming. Yep. Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't, I don't know what else to add. I just think that we're in a we're in a position now where the midwifery model of care is really a better model of care. The problem, of course, is if every every woman out there listening wanted to have a midwife, we don't have enough of them. I mean, right now, a home birth is about one point four percent of the population. The problems we have in women's health care in this country is not because 1.4% of women are delivering at home. Problem is because of the, you know, the 35% C-section rate and the 40% induction rate and the 80% epidural rate is not because 1% of women are giving birth at home. These are problems that are occurring because of the hospital model, which is not fixable. And the problem right now is we don't have enough midwives to change the culture. And then midwives now are there, even their organizations are now being infiltrated and being taken over by corporate medicine and by, by policies that are turning them into sort of what we jokingly call medwives instead of midwives because they're very medicalized. So this is, you know, this is where my expertise lies. I mean, I, I do want to again get back to the fertility issues and stuff like that. And, and when you're older, there are tests that they run. And again, I'm not an expert on this, but they run the thing called an anti-Mullerian hormone. And they look at an ultrasound for what are called antral follicles. And they can give you a predictive value of the chance of you conceiving in any given cycle. But remember, these are predictive values. It's never, well, it's almost never, never. And it's almost never always. But it, it's helpful. But if you have to, you know, again, if some people are over, the, you know, we're in the, this age group, that's where they're at. But I would encourage younger women to reevaluate their their priorities and what do they want in life. If they want children, then you either have to decide to have children when you're in your 20s or early 30s, or you have to understand that it might be more difficult for you down the road. That is nature's design. It's not your fault. It's, I, I like to blame the, the culture, and I think there is purpose behind all this stuff going on. It, it's all, it all comes together too smoothly for it not to be somebody's design. I just, I don't know who that somebody is. Yeah, I don't believe in coincidence, Doc. I just think that we're not doing it right, and the people that are not doing it right don't have your, your concerns at heart. They may pay lip service to it, but they ultimately don't by their actions. The problem is, is the system is working really well for the people that run it. They have the nicest buildings. They have the nicest private jets. They have the nicest salaries. Uh, they're doing great. They probably have different healthcare plans than what they're offering. You know, I think the executives of insurance companies don't offer the, don't use the same product that they're offering to sell you. 
So it's always this sort of elitist sort of thing that's going on. There's somebody always benefiting from it. You always look at the money. And again, one of the, one of my mantras is that there's no money in doing nothing. I don't get, I don't get rich talking people out of having these tests or having these things or doing certain things a certain way or having a vaginal breach delivery or, or, um, uh, you know, um, well, just skipping on ultrasound or, or, you know, you don't get paid for that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in it's, it's interesting, like how much there, there is still to learn for most women who, who aren't even familiar with any of this stuff. I mean, it's incredible. So it would be awesome in, in closing doc, if, if you would share a little bit about, you know, cause so many women are afraid to push back or to ask for something different, or they feel like if they don't follow the medical model, they're doing something wrong. I mean, it would be awesome to like, just kind of give women a few things to keep in mind and, so that they can make even more informed choices moving forward and to not be afraid to stand up for what they want when it comes to themselves and their baby. Well, whether it's for fertility workup or pregnancy or whatever, anything else, you know, you are the client, you're hiring this person. They work for you. You know, if you have a, a guy that comes and tells you you need a new roof on your house, you don't just say, yes, sir. You know, you look into it, you investigate it, you get a second opinion, you get somebody else. No, no, I can just patch that place. You don't need another roof. So, you, you, you know, it's up to you as a consumer to understand that you have the power and you have to say no. And it's, and, and, and I, even if you're a loving human being, the time to decide to sacrifice your own well-being to, for the comfort of your physician because you don't want to upset them is over. You need to understand that, that they need to understand, they need to be made to understand that their system is a, is a problem. And so, you know, advocate for yourself. Look, you know, look to alternative forms of care. Trust your gut. If something doesn't feel right, it doesn't sound right, then it probably isn't right. And here's a good red flag that was given to me by the, um, from Trisha and Cynthia about red flags is if when you go see your infertility specialist or when you go see your OB, when you come out of the office at the end and get back in your car, do you feel better than you felt or do you feel worse than you felt when you got there? So and if you felt you were heard and you were listened to and you walk out with a little bit of smile on your face and a handshake, that's a good sign. And if you come out saying, God, you know, I, I didn't feel like I could ask a single question and now I'm more worried about this little ditzel in my baby's heart than, than I was when I came in. And now I'm worried about something that probably doesn't mean anything. And, and I, I feel really stressed out about it. Then that, then, then trust yourself, trust your judgment, go someplace else. It's a marketplace and it's the most valuable thing that you're probably going to ever do in your life. So don't just trust it to a Blue Cross insurance card. <laughs> down, down to birth podcast is what I was trying to think of. Thank you. Okay. That's awesome. Well, you know, I really appreciate your generosity, Dr. Fishbein, and I love your willingness to ruffle feathers in the name of truth and critical thinking. I think it's fantastic. And I love that you're encouraging women to not be afraid of birth, not be afraid of their bodies and to trust themselves. So uh, we'll put links to uh, your podcast, uh, Birthing Instincts, and your Instagram and all of the that good stuff in the show notes. But I really want to thank you for what you're doing. 
thank you for what you've shared here. And it's been an honor to spend the time with you. So one more thing, if I can, if I can just add this at the end, there's a movie that I love to watch. And I, I got this from a podcaster named Dan Bongino. It's called the Moneyball Theory. And if you've seen Moneyball, it's with Brad Pitt and, and uh, Jonah Hill. And it's a, it's a really good movie for if you like sports movies. Anyway, there's a scene in there where the scouts are telling him about this really good hitter in the minors. And Billy Bean, played by Brad Pitt, says, well, if he's such a good hitter, how come he doesn't hit good? And the point I'm making is that if the medical model that everyone is advocating for in the, in the medical world is so good, how come it isn't so good? And then you have to think about that for just, just to ask yourself the question, ask your doctor the question. If we're so good, how come we have, uh, we're 45th in the world in neonatal mortality and we're like over 40th in, in uh, maternal mortality and we spend more money per capita on healthcare than any other country in the world? And how come do we really believe that one third of all women can't deliver vaginally? Do we really believe that, that like in England, over 50% of babies now are not born with a spontaneous vaginal delivery. They're either born by induction or by uh, C-section or by vacuum or forceps. Do we really believe that 80 to 90% of women have to have an epidural and deliver flat on their back with their legs and stirrups? And if this is all doing so well, how come the rate of cerebral palsy and neonatal death hasn't fallen one iota since 1970 when the C-section rate was 5%? So we've had a 500% increase in the cesarean section rate with no evidence that it's done any benefit and with obvious evidence that it hasn't done any benefit, that it's done, it's had negative efficacy on many, many women. And I'll close with this, and you can edit this out if you want to or not. This is an example, of my, my favorite example of cognitive dissonance, all right? The United States, let's just say the C-section rate is 30%, and, and there's about 3.8 million babies born every year in the United States. So that's about one point. 3 million cesarean sections being done every year in the United States. The World Health Organization, which is not an organization that I'm very fond of, but they do state that the C-section rate in the United States should be between 10 and 15%. But for the sake of easy math, let's just take the higher one and say it's 15%. But it's 30%, but it should be 15%. So what does that imply? That implies that half of all the C-sections being done are unnecessary. That's 650,000 unnecessary major abdominal surgeries being performed on American women every year. If there were 650,000 unnecessary knee surgeries or gallbladders or mastectomies, not only would would families be upset, but insurance companies would be upset because they're paying for this stuff. But insurance companies are not upset that they're paying for 650,000 unnecessary major abdominal surgeries every year. You can ask yourself why that is, but here's the even the greater question. If half of all C-sections are unnecessary, and I believe they are. I believe it's more than half. I believe the C-section rate should be under 10%. I mean, it was 5%, as we said, in 1970. But if half of all these C-sections, at least, are unnecessary, who's doing them? Because no doctor goes home at night and says to their spouse, hey, honey, guess what? I did two unnecessary C-sections today. Every C-section a doctor does, he believes is necessary, yet half are unnecessary. So in order to order to have those things go together, you have to create massive cognitive dissonance. You have to use an excuse like, well, it, it's the other guy that's doing the unnecessary ones. But what's the other guy saying? The other guy's saying it's you doing the unnecessary one. And nobody gets held accountable for doing unnecessary major abdominal surgery, which not only affects the mother for life, for her, the rest of her life, but it affects the baby that she gave birth and it affects all her potential future babies. 
because now she's got a scarred uterus and she has to deal with the whole VBAC issue. And no one's addressing that. Yet they're, they're, that they're railing on the fact that 1.4% of women are giving birth at home. This is where like the American College OBGYN and stuff focuses its attention on. Not on the real problem that they're lying. It's like the, it's like the Wizard of Oz thing. It's like, they'll pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. You know, look over here. Look at that, look at that big puffy guy over there. Don't look at this. Don't look at the real problem over here. That's where we are. And whether it be why we're, you know, why culture has caused women to delay fertility or why women choose to do it or why maybe fertility is falling naturally because of environmental issues or whatever else, they're not looking at that. They're looking at a way to put, put uh, uh, a Band-Aid on, you know, on a severed artery. And, and it's not going to work. Yeah. Well, all of when when you put all the pieces together, Doc, it's an ugly picture. It's a really ugly picture. And and I think that for a, a lot of women, it's a pretty hard wake up call. I mean, I I honestly believe that our struggle with fertility is an invitation to step into an awareness of what's really going on. Like it's the first time I think women really take a look around their lives. And say, how did I get here? And yeah, you know, they, they say things that are bad are, are incredibly dark. But the truth is they're incredibly bright because this is all in front of you. And it's very hard to look at brightness, right, directly. You can't look at the sun. And this is all right in front of us. And it's been going on for decades. All the things that I was taught when I was a, a little kid about the food pyramid and about other things, they were all wrong. They were straight up lies. <laughs> right. And, and they knew they were wrong, that they know are wrong. It's incredibly obvious. It's incredibly out there. And no one's looking at it because it's incredibly bright. Um, and we have to take care of our next generation of children. And we're going to have to find alternatives to what's being offered to us now. And I know we've gotten way off topic and I'll just leave it at that. But I do appreciate the opportunity. Oh my gosh. We could we could go all day, Doc. I mean, but but I think I love that you're sharing that ultimately, because what this comes down to is women starting to take control of their lives, becoming good moms before they conceive, while they're pregnant, and afterward, and really exercising an even greater, more informed level of ownership in their lives. Because this is not because women are stupid. I think it's because we are ignorant. It's intentional. Right. There's a there's an intentional dumbing down of our female population about very basic things that, you know, would give them the kind of license and agency to take control and be an amazing advocate. I mean, it's insane to me that such highly educated women would feel afraid of advocating for themselves. But that is our culture. So it's been such a pleasure, Doc. I, I can't wait for this audience to get to know you, to follow you. And when they get pregnant, to not be afraid of labor, not be afraid of birth, and and to not be afraid of the magic that it is to be a woman. And find a team that supports their desires. Don't settle. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, Thanks, Roseanne. We won't settle, Doc. Thank you. Thank you. Woo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo, loves. That was a powerful conversation. Now, it is my sincere hope and, frankly, expectation that after having listened to this, you are going to go do your own research. You are going to become more informed, educate yourself, start challenging the narratives, 
we hear so much about what we can't do. And, and we hear so much about what we should be afraid of. But it is very rare that we hear how much power we have, the license we have, the agency we have, and the ability to think critically is everything. In times of crisis, the most important resource that you have is your ability to think and think clearly, think critically, and think with the end in mind. And look, when you have that kind of awareness and when you remember that you have everything inside of you right now to be successful on this journey, and often it's simply a question of polishing that, getting more education, learning how to think in a different way, that you can have what you want. It may look different than you expected. It may challenge you. But at the end of the day, when you desire this baby, you're going to find a way. You're going to find a way. And resourceful women do not limit themselves to the mainstream narrative. They go out there, they become detectives, they find answers because there is an answer for you out there. So I truly hope that you loved this conversation that I had with Dr. Fishbein. So make sure you check him out on Instagram at Birthing Instincts. Check out his podcast, the Birthing Instincts podcast. And look, if you know that it is time that you break free from the narrative and you start to think, believe, and take action like a woman who succeeds on this journey, my Fearlessly Fertile Method program is for women who intend to get pregnant in the next 12 months and say hell yes to covering their bases, mind and body. Because here's the deal, your mind and your body work together. We're not just a bag of organs. We are a complete body. We are a complete being and all of these things, mind and body work together, baby. And if you're not leveraging the power of your mindset as you move through your journey, you've got a gaping hole in your strategy, sister. Let's unfuck that and get you back on the path to fertility success. Go to my website, www.frommaybe2baby.com and apply for an interview there. My methodology has helped women around the world make their mom dreams come true. Just listen to a few of the interviews with my ladies on this podcast. Go check out my Instagram. We got four highlight reels deep proving that this mindset shit is no joke. Till next time, change your mindset change your results. Love this episode of the Fearlessly Fertile podcast? Subscribe now and leave an awesome review. Remember, the desire in your heart to be a mom is there because it was meant for you. When it comes to your dreams, keep saying hell yes.